please stay standing uh, as we read God's word from Genesis chapter 33. It says this, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, but what, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I had found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to the Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for the livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan on his way to Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from there, the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he created, he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, be with Pastor Ryan as he comes up this morning and let us hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Hey, how we doing? It's good to be back in the saddle this morning, you know? Uh, Brandon did a great job, didn't he? It's so great to have so many gifted preachers uh, in, in our church. Um, and so we're continuing in our, uh, in our series where we're w- walking through the book of Genesis. And as you can tell, we're in Genesis 33 today, which uh, is, is, for me is uh, an incredibly emotional um, passage of Scripture to me. Um, and I think it's because of all the history that you read between these two brothers and, uh, and, and what God's done there. Um, we can't avoid conflict in this world. Uh, I know people, and I myself have been one of those people that have tried to avoid it, uh, but we can't. No matter who you are in here this morning, we've all experienced relationships at times, and maybe you know them right now, that are, are easier to give up on than continue in. Amen? Yeah, we don't want to agree, but we do. 
right? We, we have relationships in our lives that seem easier to give up on than to continue in. About 10 years ago, a mentor friend of mine helped me to do one of the most uncomfortable things possible. Um, <clears throat> well, for a people pleaser like me anyway, maybe some of you are that way. But, but, but what he began to teach and disciple into me was to lean into conflict instead of running away from it. Uh, so instead of, instead of being repelled by those moments that you, that you want to run away from, to, to take a step toward uh, the conflict. So, I, you know, I think about like kind of silly moments where like I, <laughs> recently uh, I, I cut off a guy on 85, okay? And uh, I'm sure none of you have ever done that. And, uh, and, then, <laughs> and then I'm thinking, oh, that was not good. And then, uh, you know, he's like, he's kind of frustrated. And so then, um, then the <laughs> like the worst case scenario happens. We get stuck in standstill traffic and he creeps up right next to me. <laughs> And I'm like, I'm like trying to hide. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, man, are they, can these windows get any darker? You know, you're trying to hide from the awkwardness. And I just did something that was kind of out of the ordinary for me. I rolled down the window and he rolled down his window, which could have been bad, by the way. And I said, hey, man, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And, uh, and he said, yeah, 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 yeah. One of those moments could have gone by. Or, or I think about moments in marriage where I'm short or inconsiderate. Moments that uh, I just want to put my headphones in and escape. I mean, none of you are like that. Um, but, but, but what I really need to do in those moments is to stop and take the plank out of my eye and repent and pursue my wife and pursue my children, pursue my family. In fact, just one month into our uh, marriage, um, <clears throat> a, a thing happened that I think about often. Um, it's almost like a picture of how we're tempted to handle conflict uh, in our flesh, no matter what the relationship is. We hit this moment in a relationship, and Megan knows exactly where I'm going with this, where we, 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 there was a disagreement, and I was like, fine, I'm sleeping on the couch. I just kind of thrown in the towel for the night, went out on the couch. I just want you to picture a couch here. I was going to bring one out, but we didn't have time for that. But I said, fine, then I'm sleeping on the couch. I, I went out to the couch, hung out, uh, I don't know, for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, uh, they're hoping uh, that the new morning would just make it all go away, right? The disagreement just disappear because that's how conflict works, right? That's how it's resolved when you just ignore it. And, um, and, and it, was, it was kind of a pivotal moment in how I think about uh, relationships because for me, there are often times in my life where I am tempted to just embrace a fine, I'm just gonna sleep on the couch mentality with conflict. It's the tendency to let the conflict be final. Um, and one of our values as a church is this. Because we are reconciled, we are now a reconciling people. A reconciled and reconciling life does not afford us the liberty of an I'm just going to sleep on the couch kind of life, church. And the gospel calls us to do the most uncomfortable and eternally helpful thing possible, which is lean into conflict. And the reason that we can do this is because God did it first. The kingdom of God was birthed in a cosmic conflict. We were at odds with God because we chose our own way, right? We, we chose to sleep on the proverbial couch, to, to, to leave God. And God did not leave us. He entered in by sending Jesus to us. And this is, this is why whenever we realize how 
reconciled and the relationship we have with God is so beautiful that he moved toward us, it gives us the courage and the strength to move toward others. Reconciliation. That's what today's about. It's what Genesis 33 is about. And today we're going to be in uh, parts of the Old Testament, obviously, but also the New Testament. Uh, there's a Greek word uh, in the New Testament for reconciliation, and it's, it's called this, kata alasso, not to be confused with Ted Lasso. Um, it has, some of you got that, cool. It has two words, two words to, to, to this, a, 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 a preposition, kata, and in Kentucky, here's how they taught me about what prepositions were, anywhere a mouse can go. Maybe that was just my backwoods education, but that's how they t- told me to remember it. It's a directional kind of word, kata. It's a, it's a, it's a moving toward one another. It's a moving down toward the relationship. You can't say you value reconciliation when you stay on the couch, whatever your metaphorical couch is. And then there's the other part of it, alasso, which means to change. So what's happening in reconciliation is change in either one or both parties that results in being in the same place or position. That's the picture of reconciliation, this movement toward one another, this movement for God condescending, moving toward us and us moving toward one another in the gospel. And we can do this because it is God that has sacrificed for us to make that happen. His kata movement toward us has changed us, right? So now here's what we see. And this is kind of the horizontal piece that I want to talk about. That, and it's our big idea. As those that are reconciled to God, we can trust his protection as we reconcile with others. Because you and I know pursuing reconciliation is a scary and a dangerous thing to do. Because it often does not go how we think it's going to. Sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. But the point that I want to make today is is that it doesn't really matter because we have a responsibility as stewards of the gospel to pursue reconciliation with one another. So three three big things we're going to talk about. One, I want to give you a a vision for biblical reconciliation. Two, I want to give you an example of reconciliation. We see this in uh, Genesis 33. And, And number three, I want to give you an opportunity, an opportunity to take inventory of your own relationships. Hey, Evan, I'm going to ask you to do something. Can you turn the house lights up just a little bit? I want to see these beautiful faces. Can we do that? Yeah, that's great. I can see you guys now. That's awesome. All right, so let's look into this vision. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is kind of the, it's kind of the textbook uh, for a biblical view of reconciliation. And what I've found when we think about reconciliation, I've kind of already mentioned it this morning, is that there are kind of two directions to reconciliation, maybe two Axis that it's axi. How do you say plural of axis? Axis? Just sounds wrong. I don't know, but you get where I'm going. There's two of those, all right? There's a vertical component and there's a horizontal component. Second Corinthians 5 mentions both of them. Genesis 32 and 33 mentions both of them. So let me let me start in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today. Here's what Paul writes. He says this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. We persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us 
so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. That's the key. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. It's key to everything. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who has for their sake died. Paul's saying that the gospel means that God has found us in our hiding. He says, what we are is known to God. And that's good news to Paul. That's good news to Christian that God knows you even though you don't want him to sometimes. That he came down, he came down to our level, not so that we could stay there, but so we could experience resurrection in that deepest part of being known. Because when you're known, you have nothing else to fear. You have no fear of projecting kind of future pain in life because you're known to God. And there's a surrender and a comfort that comes from being controlled, as Paul said, by God's love. He knows all the hidden things that no one else knows. He knows all the times we've been misunderstood and taken advantage of. He knows all the ways we've been hurt by other people. Think about Jacob. I love kids. I, t- I say this all the time. I love it when kids cry because it means the church is growing and it's alive. Um, think about Jacob. God knows him. Jacob, uh, J- <laughs> Jacob's stuff is out there for the world to see, right? Uh, literally. So because, just think about his life. Think about all of the twists and turns. And then think about ha- what happened the night before Genesis 33 happened. This, this occasion where he wrestles with God, where he meets God. And I don't know what he was talking about when they were wrestling, you know. I don't know if he thought he was wrestling with Esau or whether he, he knew it was God eventually, obviously. Um, but I don't I, I, I tend to think he was probably kind of hammering out all this pain in his life, right? Because you, you don't just silently wrestle all night long, right? I mean, I think he's kind of prayerfully striving with God over all of the pain, probably all the sin that's in his heart and is in his life. And I think it gives us comfort because God knows us, he loves us, and he's taken our record of sin and he's done something with it. He's nailed it to the cross, church. The old way of living is no longer an option for us. The couch is no longer an option for us. Ignoring conflict, ignoring those places where we know that sin has crept into our relationship is no longer an option for us. It's no longer a viable solution for life. We now have power to address broken relationships with others because he has first addressed our broken relationship with him. The love of Christ controls us, Paul says, not our old feelings, not our old way of life, not our old way of avoiding pain and conflict. And it's because he died and he rose, and now we are dead to the old way of living. This is this vertical component of reconciliation. And it's fostered and nourished through the Holy Spirit applying the words of God to our hearts, the words of Jesus to our hearts. It is the only truth that gives us any hope for being reconciled to other people. Made right, made whole, you know, living in a flourishing community with others. 
If, if, you're, if you're estranged from others and um, unmot- unmotivated about how to proceed, um, I, want you to, I want to encourage you to do something. I want to encourage you to revisit your reconciliation with your Father in heaven. Because when we revisit what God has done for us vertically, where he's found us at in our sin, it kind of changes the weight that we put on other people's sin against us, I, I think. For me, it does anyway. When I remember what I have done to God and what, how he has responded in that, it changes the way that I think about my relationships with others. So Paul goes on to, to talk about this, the fact that the vertical influences the horizontal. He says this in verse 16 in, in 2 Corinthians 5, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, what he's saying is, as a Christian, he no longer sees people just as fleshly sinners, but he sees people more than that. He sees people as, as, as a, a image bearers of God and opportunities to be whole and reconciled with one another. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new. He's a new creation, church. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself But he didn't just leave us in a reconciled relationship with the Father, but he gave us a ministry, a responsibility, a stewardship of reconciliation with others. Think about that. In Christ, he says, God entrusted us to the message of reconciliation, the message of the gospel. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors. We are representatives for Jesus, for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. In other words, the way that we handle relationships in this world is like God is telling the world what it's like to be in relationship with him. Think about that. As you think about how maybe in the last week, the last month, the last year, as you think about how you are relating with other people, and there's probably a couple relationships that are surfacing right now if you're anything like me, God is telling the story of the gospel through those. That's his intention anyway. It it hurts me to know sometimes the pain that I cause other people by telling them a false gospel by the way that I live my life. I don't know if you ever do that as well. But the intention for the kingdom of God to be advanced in the world is for the message of reconciliation, the message of the gospel, to go through our relationships and our lives and our conversations. He says, verse, second part of verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's saying because of this vertical component, we no longer have the right to consider people or situations like Jesus isn't standing between us. We no longer have that right. Only people who don't belong to Christ have that right and it leads to death. God has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and now we have this ministry, this relationship, this responsibility of reconciliation. But do you see the order? We'll see it in Genesis 32 and 33, but do you see the order? It's the vertical before the horizontal always. The vertical before the horizontal. The relationship with God being made right with him, and then the ability and the the call to attempt to be made right with others. 
But the world does this completely opposite. Have you noticed this? And I think we're tempted to do the same thing. It says, maybe my horizontal reconciliation will lead to my vertical alignment. Maybe if I... Maybe if I try to pursue the appearance of reconciliation with others, maybe it'll be enough for God. You know, there's, we, can't, we can't talk about the word reconciliation in 2021 without talking about racial reconciliation. Um, it's been a part of our dialogue at New City Church uh, because we know that the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is going to be filled with every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we know, we know that... Uh, Racial reconciliation has been a struggle since the beginning of the world. Just read about all the nations feuding with each other. Read about the Jews and the Gentiles in the New Testament. Just read about it. It's always been a thing. Um, <clears throat> so, so that's part of it. But the other part is, is that we actually want to taste the reality of every tribe, tongue, and nation now. In our, own, in our own context, in our own community, we live in one of the most diverse counties in the country. And so for us not to have that on uh, the table for our pursuits and our desires as a church as part of the reconciliation conversation would be foolish and blind. And so, so wh why do we need to talk about it? That's because anytime you live in a place with diverse neighbors, friends, and family, whether racially, culturally, or socioeconomically, we should expect the enemy to use differences to try to divide us. We should also, as believers, expect the Holy Spirit's power in those places. We should expect the Spirit's power to be a part of the conversation in any place division can occur in our relationships. To me, though, when we talk about, when, when, when folks talk about racial reconciliation, they talk about it in such a thin and shallow way. They talk about it in such a thin and appearance-based way. So, so for me, while I've personally had to work through parts of my own story that did involve the need to be racially reconciled, the conversation never stopped there for me. It was only part of the reconciliation process. And that may or may not be part of your story. And friends, that's the best that the world can give us is the appearance of reconciliation. The world cannot give us the power and the essence of being aligned with the one true God and the opportunity to be reconciled to others. It can't give us that. Even think about Jacob and Esau. Esau is an unbeliever. He gets the appearance of reconciliation without the essence of it. Jacob has got the essence of reconciliation, and now he also gets the appearance and fellowship of it to whatever degree is possible with a brother that's a pagan. We must think about it more deeply as the church. And I just want to make something really clear today. Jesus isn't calling you to feel guilty for how God made you, for, for how you look, uh, he's not made any of us to image Jesus more accurately than the other. He looked at each and every one of us in the garden, and he said, very good. We all collectively make up the image of God. There's no superiority in the image of God in the way that he's made us. But instead, Jesus is calling you to be reconciled with him and pursuing reconciliation in every way possible as a restoration agent in this world. And in many cases, the best news for the world is this. If people, the way the world sees it anyway, is that if people who look differently could just get along and not hate each other, then this would be heaven on earth. No, it wouldn't. It'd just be a more pleasant hell. But you and I know that this doesn't handle the biggest problem in the world that we have, which is our estrangement from God. Our estrangement from God 
reflects itself in a multitude of ways, doesn't it? There's, there's, I mean, so in my experience, in a few instances, pursuing a reconciling life might start with skin color, but it never ends there. I don't know what's true for you. If we never get past skin, we never get to the heart, which is what Paul was all about in 2 Corinthians 5. And by the way, he was talking to a Gentile church as a Jewish man, okay? God's desire is a reconciled heart with him that leads us to a reconciled heart with others where everything is on the table. Every division is on the table. So we're gonna get more practical in this last point, but I wanna talk about the actual text that I'm supposed to be preaching today, which is Genesis 33. So you wanna turn over there, that'd be great. Um, and this is an example of reconciliation in action. I know I've kind of been alluding to it, but last week uh, in Genesis 33 and 32, Brandon did a phenomenal job of exploring Jacob's reconciliation to God, the kind of that vertical component. Um, Genesis 32 and 33 are kind of meant to be a tandem package. They both kind of go together. And that's the way that it works in 2 Corinthians 5. There's the vertical and then there's the horizontal. Um, so you see that, you see that there's a change in our relationship with God, and then there's an opportunity to pursue and experience change in our relationship with others. So God had to bring Jacob to the end of himself. Jacob was not the same man that he was in the beginning of Genesis 32. Uh, Jacob wasn't the same man as he was at the end of Genesis 32. He was a different man, and why? Because he met with God. And from this encounter, Jacob says, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. What a phrase. I mean, think about your prayer life. Do you ever wrestle with God like that? I'm not gonna let go of you until you bless me. I, it's funny because I actually think about this passage every single week that I preach. And the reason I think about it is because there is a temptation in Christian ministry, especially when you're preaching, to prepare things for other people to hear and it not impact you. You know what I mean? Anybody who leads... Uh, Bible studies, missional communities, discipleship groups, there's a temptation to just kind of go in, do the work, present, and then kind of get on your way. But I have noticed in me, my, my prayer every single week is, God, I'm not gonna let go of this passage of scripture until you bless me with it. And sometimes it's like the 11th hour when he breaks me over it, right? But it's something I pursue every single week. And, and, and so Jacob is, is he's held on to God in this way and God answers Jacob's request in a way that he probably doesn't expect. And he says, okay, you got it, buddy. And God touches Jacob in such a way that for the rest of the day, the rest of his life, he's basically crippled. He walks with a slump. And Jacob's response is, after this happens, I've seen the face of God and I've lived. For him, that was miraculous. To see God's face, for God to know everything about him and to live. And God changes his name to Israel, which means striven with God. If any of you are looking for a career in pro wrestling, maybe Israel is a good name. I don't know. Striven with God, you know? I, I know some of you are still into that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, friends, when you meet God and he wrestles you down to the end of yourself, you will walk away with the limp. It will be a constant reminder that you cannot do it alone. And this is a gift. When God gives, a, and your limp is a metaphorical, you know, whatever it is for you. Paul called it a thorn in his flesh. But people that, people that encounter God and are changed by his gospel walk away differently. And for Jacob, it was a physical thing. So you think about even, even as he's going to meet Esau, 
He, he's mentioning in Genesis 33 how slow they have to go. He's blaming it on the animals and the kids, but I'm, I think it's probably him, you know? I mean, he's walking with the limp now. And so uh, he's just, his pace is different. How has God given you uh, maybe a limp in your own walk, or has he? As you've met with God and he's changed you, how has that changed how you pursue life? How has that changed how you live, how you walk out your salvation? Because many of us in this room walk with a limp today. Some maybe physically, some maybe emotionally, but there's just some weaknesses that God gives us that constantly remind us the only place, the only way we're ever gonna experience is strength. Remember 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul talks about that, he says, you know, he pleads with God to take away this thorn in his flesh and, and God says, hey, Paul, um, this is my plan for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, okay, well, I'm gonna boast all the more gladly in my weakness then so that the life of Christ can be revealed through me. The limp is God's plan for Jacob's life. The limp is God's plan for your life to keep you needy independent upon God. Because it's in these places that the Lord gets us to this point that, that our minds and our hearts are open to the possibility of transformation. Think about, think about gen, just the, the passages before this. What was Jacob plotting as he was anticipating meeting Esau? He was plotting all these different ways to separate the people and to hide, you know, hide some you know, family over here and like servants over here and some animals over here. And he's trying to manipulate this way to, to like, he's bracing for Esau, getting ready to like plunder them, right? But he's doing things differently now that he's met with God. Let's, let's read this. Um, he's open to the possibility of God meeting him in the conflict. That's the difference, right? He's willing to lean in because God's changed him. Jacob lifted up his eyes, verse 1, and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. Oh, that's it, huh? Just 400. <laughs> so so he, he divides the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he puts servants with their children in the front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Verse 3, listen to how God's changed Jacob. He himself went on before them. He himself led the way, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his, his brother. The last that Jacob knows is that he's about to be executed by Esau. It's the last that he knows right here. And his family is going to watch it all happen. And sure, maybe he's trying to manipulate the situation by putting the kids in view. I, I don't know. But what we know is that he's finally facing the music of his sin. He's finally taking the plank out of his eye, church. He's moving toward his brother. He's being vulnerable and open. I mean, can you imagine a more vulnerable position? You've got this brother who kills for fun, right? I mean, he's a hunter. He just loves it. And then you're walking out in front of him, and he's already, said, he's already made a vow that he's going to take your life 20 years ago. And he's risking it all for why? The hope of reconciliation. The hope, the possibility. He has no idea how this is going to turn out. He didn't have the power or the confidence in God to do this before he met with God in Genesis 32. Jacob, maybe for the first time in his life, is functionally attempting to trust God. He's using his reconciliation with God to trust it in his relationship with others. And then the most amazing thing happens. Verse 4. 
Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. To everyone in here who's ever given up on a relationship, read this verse again. If there was any reason to give up on a relationship, it's this one. Jacob is limping toward his brother. He's bracing for the worst. Esau is running toward his brother with joy. I just think about when I read this, it reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son when the father runs toward the lost son. And Esau is as lost as can be. God has orchestrated this whole thing because he loves Jacob. Because he loves them and he loves their brotherhood and wants them to experience that he's worked to some degree in Esau's life. Maybe not in a saving way, but he's worked. And reconciliation is possible and it's happening and it's reflecting God's heart. Running, falling, weeping, loving. Those are the types of unpredictable emotions and actions that, that follow when you trust God with your reconciliation pursuits with others. To anyone who's given up on a relationship, I would never want you to forget this passage right here. It's worth it because God calls us to it. And then he gives us the power and the strength to enter in, even though sometimes we don't know how it's gonna go. And most of the time it happens differently than we think that it will. And all the time it usually takes longer, right? It's really hard to learn to live out of this but it's what God's called us to. Verse four, Esau lifted up his eyes and and he sees the women and the children and he says, hey bro, who are all these people? And Jacob says, the children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Remember Jacob left as a single man on the run when he went out to Uncle Laban's house and spent 20 years out there. And the servants drew near and their children, they bowed down and Leah did the same and, and the children that she had. And then last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. He's like, bro, these are your nieces and nephews. They would have all been, think about this, between the ages of 13 and a newborn. That's how old they would be. And Esau's meeting them for the first time. And Esau says, hey, what do you mean by all this company that I've met? Jacob answers, he's talking about all the stuff that, that he's brought as well. And he says, to find favor in your sight. So you could read into that and you could say, you know, I think he's trying to buy Esau's love, also known as like trying to save his own life. Um, but so Esau kind of refuses. He says, no, I've got enough, brother. You know, keep what you have for yourself. Verse 10, Jacob says, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept, listen to that word, my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of, of God, brother, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Therefore, Esau took it. So when Jacob experiences the forgiveness of his brother, he equates it to his experience of being reconciled to God. Did you hear that? He's like, I've you know, he's, he, meets, he meets Jesus the night before. That's what I believe. I think it's a theophany, which is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. He meets Jesus the night before, who first accepts him as he is, 
loved him enough to let Jacob wrestle out his sin and his pain and question his heart all night long. And at the end, Jacob was changed. He was a lassoed, right? He was changed. He was different. But this different type of limping and posture toward life, way different than the guy who left to go out um, to his uncle Laban's house. But then Jacob goes on to insist that Esau receive some restitution from him for all the pain that Jacob had inflicted upon his life, stealing the birthright, right? Uh, stealing the blessing. At first Esau resisted, but then he accepts it. And I think he accepts it because he realizes that for Jacob, this is a spiritual thing. It's not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing for Jacob. It's the same thing you think about uh, Zacchaeus. Remember when Zacchaeus was converted, the wee little guy that climbed up in the tree? What did he do? He's like, I want to pay everybody back. I think it's like three times what he took from him, right? So basically, he's going broke after this. Like for him, repentance, it meant restitution for him. Jacob feels, feels the same way about it. For him, he had to put his money where his mouth was because part of his sin was in stealing and taking. He was a changed man and had to change directions and to give and to live generously now. And this is showing that he's a different, different man. But just, just think about that phrase one more time. I've seen your face, and it's, it's like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. He's talking about 2 Corinthians 5 here. He's talking about this ministry of reconciliation, the fact that when you and I live out of our reconciliation with God in, in the watching world, what's happening is, is we're inviting others to see the face and word and heart of God through our relationships, church. It's not about us. It's not about how hard it might be. It's not even about what might happen, how we might be misunderstood or rejected. It's about the gospel being on display in live action through our relationships. That's God's heart for us, church. It's the hardest thing we'll ever do and we'll never have the courage to do it unless the gospel's deep, deep in our bones. This is the last that we hear of these two brothers crossing paths. But isn't it a sweet and kind of hopeful ending, right? I don't want you to get the wrong impression because there's still gonna be shrapnel that will follow Jacob because of all of the pain he's inflicted on other people. We're gonna see some of it next week, actually. It's not a fairy tale reconciliation. It's not a Disney ending. And, and even in my own story, like last week, guys, I was working, um, I was working with this guy and, and um you know, he's done just about everything he can to pursue reconciliation with another believer, just hasn't gone anywhere. And those, in those situations, sometimes we, we just need space because it's, we're not the one that can lasso anybody. We can't change anybody, right? All we can do is move toward it. That's all we can do. And listen, there are some relationships that are maybe toxic and codependent and you need to use discernment and wisdom on. I'm not saying there's never a place where a relationship has to be cut off. There definitely is. But what I wanna encourage you to do as I land the plane here is to invite the Holy Spirit into that process instead of just thinking through our flesh. So let's, let's just use this as an opportunity, friends, uh, to take inventory of our own relationships and seek to appropriate the power of the gospel in our relationships, all right? So the first, if, just four real quick things here, just practical things. First question I want you to consider and take uh, inventory in, our, in your reconciliation inventory uh, checklist here is this. Am I really reconciled to God through Christ? Because here's the thing. 
If in your life you have a history of never pursuing reconciliation with other people, you've got to ask yourself this question. You've got to ask yourself this question because it's a, it's a you remember that, that the whole axis, axi thing, however that works? It's a vertical, you know, there's two kind of things, vertical and horizontal always. So the first question we need to ask is, am I really reconciled to God? Do I really believe that God knows me? Do I really believe that Jesus took the cross that I deserve? Do I really believe that his payment for sin, his redemption was sufficient to make me right with God, that I've got nothing left to lose and everything to gain because of Christ? Because if we don't ask ourselves this question, it's possible to still be trying to reconcile with others in our own strength, which never quite hits the depth that the gospel hits. God reduced Jacob. He brought him to nothing. This strong, deceitful man, this man that was running, he was able to dodge all these bullets to be this somewhat weak and crippled man. Jacob had to be weak enough to be saved before God allowed him to be reconciled to his brothers. First question we gotta ask ourselves is, am I really reconciled to God through Christ? Do I really believe in the gospel? Or am I more of a kind of a, functional atheist where I just I kind of say that I am, but it never shows up in my life. And I'd be doing you no favors by not inviting you to ask that question. Second thing is this. Do I believe that God will lead and protect me in the relationships that I have with others? Pursuing reconciliation is dangerous. It's risky. Like for Jacob, it could have cost him his life, right? Sometimes I fail to lean into conflict in my own fear, and it's because I don't want to open myself up to the potential for pain. It's a natural response, actually. Or sometimes I don't think they deserve it, so I punish them with my absence. When those types of statements are coming from my mouth, it's showing me that I lack faith that God is actually able and willing to protect my heart as I pursue reconciliation. If you have a troubling relationship in your life right now that you just want to avoid, you just want to go sit on the couch and just kind of take it off, um, I want to encourage you to ask uh, this question. Do I believe that God will actually protect me in my relationship with other people? Third thing is this. We're getting, drilling down here, we're getting more specific. Are there relationships I have not allowed the Holy Spirit into? These are the relationships that you say, just, God, we're not going there. It's just not going to happen. I got my church folks, but this one, it ain't happening. Or it's a church folk, and I'm sitting on the other side of the room this morning, right? I don't know what it is for you. Um, on one hand, God doesn't need us to allow him to do anything, right? We're good Presbyterians here. God's sovereign. But on the other hand, he is pleased to work his will through our lives. And sometimes we make vows or promises that usually have the word never in them. <clears throat> I'm never going to talk to that person again. I'm never opening myself up to that kind of hurt again. Do you have any of those relationships in your life now? Ones that you say, yeah, not doing that one. Mm -mm. Never going back to see them. This might be a relationship that's 20 years old. This one, Jacob and Esau, 20 years had crossed. Do you have any of those? If you do, I want to encourage you to let light into those places. I'm not going to predict what that looks like, but I just want you to ask yourself the question, do I have any of those in my life now?
Because when we give up on relationships that God has never called us to give up on, we can easily find ourselves in a place of sin, just perpetual sin. And everything we look at in life is with this kind of filthy heart because we don't let God's light into there. And and the lie we believe is that that part of my life will not affect the other parts of my life, right? We're really good at this, especially guys. That won't affect this over here. But the problem is, is that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So if it's in your heart, it's coming out of your mouth. That's basically what Jesus says. Um, And so I just want you to ask yourself the question, have I surrendered to God in that way, to those relationships? And lastly, here's the last thing. What's the next step of obedience for me today? I think sometimes we can think about the future a lot. Jesus never calls us to think about the future. He calls us to think about today. In fact, he says that when you think about tomorrow, it causes anxiety to well up in your heart, which is just kind of a constant state of life for most Americans, right? Just a perpetual anxiety. Um, He asks us to think about today. So don't try to project outcomes about these relationships you're thinking about. Don't try to to hotwire situations for the Lord to move in certain ways because you're going to be disappointed, right? The promise is not that it will go exactly like you planned it but rather that we would experience God's presence and his pleasure in our lives as we pursue reconciliation and live obediently to him. And as we, just, as we turn to this table today, I want to read a passage to you that I think is really fitting for us. It comes from Matthew 5, and, um, and we'll turn to the table after this. The scriptures say this. This is kind of set in the context of a worship service, all right? So kind of like right here. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, so if you're you're like like getting ready to drop your tithe check in the box back there, and you you remember that someone has something against you, your brother has something against you. So in other words, not that that you have done something to them, but you remember that somebody has done something to you, and you're not reconciled. He says, leave your gift. In other words, Walk out the doors of the church. Don't worship through taking the table. Don't worship through dropping your money in the box. And first be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the garden, you'd be put in prison. He kind of sheds light on a different way. But what Jesus is saying is that this is really, really important. That this, for you this morning, friend, pursuing reconciliation could be the most pleasing aroma of worship to your Father in heaven. Think about that this morning. And if you're in here today and you're, you'd say, man, I'm not reconciled to God. Like, I've just been, it's becoming clear to me. It's rec- horizontal reconciliation never shows up in my life. I just give up on people. And I'm starting to ask myself, am I really reconciled to God? And you say, yeah, I'm not. The invitation for you is to surrender to Jesus today, to receive his love and his life into your heart. And myself or the, the folks that are praying out in the, in the foyer right now would love to pray uh, for you and help you make that step today. So but let me pray for us, and then we're, go- we're going to come to this table today, and we're going to be thinking about reconciliation as we come to the table. So let's pray together. Father, uh, I thank you. I thank you that we have the possibility of experiencing reconciliation in this world today because you have chosen to be reconciled with us. Uh, Lord, as we take inventory of our own lives and our relationships, um, 
Father, I think it probably, probably hurts most of us to think. Um, think about some situations and things in our life. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you would encourage our hearts um, to, to, to move forward in faith, um, to express our faith in your protection and rescue through pursuing others, Lord. And so, Lord, we're, we're so thankful that, that while we were a long way away, while we were still sinners, Romans says, Christ died for us. You didn't wait for us to get our act together to pursue us, Father. And we are so thankful for that. And that's why we, we surrender our lives to you today. And we thank you for that opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.